Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys today. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. Uh, if you're new, this is your first time. Really want to welcome you to our church. You've already been welcomed a couple times, but let me just say that again. We're glad you're here with us. It's not an accident uh, that you're here. God has brought you here for a purpose. Uh, we're going to hear God's word uh, over the next few moments together, and I believe God's going to move in your life in a mighty, mighty way. Uh, if this is your first time, you picked a good Sunday to join us. Uh, one reason is we're having a barbecue after the service. And so right after the service, we're going to walk out here. Uh, there's plenty for everybody, and we're going to eat lunch together. I would encourage you, stay, connect with somebody, get to know somebody that you, you don't know at this moment. And part of the reason we're having a barbecue is because we have this group from Texas here. The great nation. The great nation of Texas is here. Uh, and so you got to have barbecue, right? you got to host the Texas people. And I'm from Texas, so I, I said, okay, if we have to, we'll... We'll have barbecue after the service, and uh, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about why these guys are here. Maybe some of you are new, and you're like, why, why do we keep mentioning Texas, Amarillo? Uh, here's the brief story. Uh, we're a new church, a little over two years old, and about a year and a half ago, I think it was, uh, I met a guy named David Nance in Amarillo, Texas, through some mutual connections. He heard about our church and uh, a new church getting started in downtown Phoenix, and he just let me know. He said, hey, I want to pray for you guys and support that any way I can. And so he began to, to do that. Amarillo, Texas to Phoenix. Crazy how God works, but he did. And over the course of our relationship last fall, he called me up and said, hey, Tim, we, we bring a group of high school students from First Baptist Amarillo uh, to somewhere over spring break, and we want to do that in Phoenix, and we want to serve with your church. Can we do that? And I said, amen, exactly. I said, yes, bring it, let's, let's do that. And so over the last few months, I think we have a picture of these guys. They've been praying and planning for this week to come serve on mission with you. And so I don't know if you realize this, if you're a Christian in this room, Phoenix is a mission field. There's people that they prayed for to come to know Jesus this week. There's people that you can pray for uh, every day of your life to come to know Jesus, to serve, to make disciples in this area. And so that's, that's why they're here. And so there's going to be a lot of ways starting today with something as simple as handing out flyers that you can come alongside these guys and serve them, declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ in this area. And we just have a lot more reinforcements to do that this week, right? And so I hope you take advantage of that. I hope at the barbecue you stay, uh, cancel your other plans, get to know some of these kids. Ask them, why would you give up your spring break at 16 years old? Instead of going to the beach, come to Phoenix, Arizona. Ask them. Ask them. See what they say. Get into conversations. Encourage these guys and serve with them. You're going to hear more about ways to do that throughout the week. And so uh, we are going to get into the sermon this morning. Uh, we're in week five of our series in Nehemiah. I encourage you, grab a Bible. There should be one near you. If you didn't bring one, a, a black one that's right around you, grab that one. Uh, you'll go through about a quarter of the Old Testament, get through the Kings, Chronicles, Samuels, all that. Then you'll see Ezra and Nehemiah. That's where we're going to be. Chapter six is where we are today. And I want to catch you up. I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast, go on the website. We've been through a lot, even just in a few weeks. Uh, but I'll catch you up just briefly now. So here's what's happening as we come to chapter 6. The Jewish people have been in exile, uh, meaning they've been away from their home. Their home is Jerusalem, but they've been away from there, uh, being exiled from their, their homeland. But some of them have been able to return as of uh, late. 
And this guy named Nehemiah, he is Jewish as well, but he's not living in Jerusalem. He is serving a, a Persian king. He's his cupbearer. The king's name is Artaxerxes, and he's his servant. He, he brings the wine to him. He tests it for him, makes sure it's not poison, right? And so this is Nehemiah. He shows up on the scene and helps his Jewish brethren rebuild their city of Jerusalem because it needs to be rebuilt. It's in bad shape. Uh, we read in chapters 1 and chapters 2, the walls had been broken down, the gates had been burned down, and that day, that was your defense, that was part of your economy, and all that is broken down. It has been that way for a long time, and Nehemiah leaves his position in the palace to come to his people and to serve with them to rebuild Jerusalem. And so what we've seen over and over is this, that as they rebuild, there's opposition that comes against them, and then they advance. There's opposition that comes against them again, and then they advance over and over again. And today we come to more opposition, Nehemiah chapter 6. If you take notes, if you've got a bulletin when you walked in, there should be in the middle of that a section where you can take notes. Here's our three points for the day. Uh, we're going to talk about focus, fear, and finish. Focus, fear, and finish. Look at our first point, verse 1. We'll read it together. It says this, now when Sanballat... And Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it. Although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So as you look at this text, as we start chapter 6, you see some familiar names, right? Should be, if you've been with us, Sanballat and Tobiah. These guys aren't new. They've been opposing Nehemiah from the very beginning. Why are they doing that? We know just a little bit from the, the text, a little bit from historical context, that Sanballat was a, was a governor in the land of Samaria, about 30 miles north of where Jerusalem is, where Nehemiah is. And, and until this point, you got to remember, Jerusalem has been a little bit vacant, has been broken down. The people have been gone. And so people in a nearby place have been able to take advantage of that. They've been able to get more influence, more power, Sanballat and Tobiah, guys like this. They've been able to, to increase in their power and influence as they, as they feed on the poor in Jerusalem, as they feed on this hardship that the, that the Jews are going through. And so Nehemiah shows up. He's rebuilding things. The people are coming together. We've seen that. And Sanballat and Tobiah get fearful, like maybe they're going to mess with our power. Maybe they're going to mess up our game. we got to do something. And so over and over and over again, they try to stop and disrupt the building of the wall. And that's where we are again, except what we see is in verse 1, look at the verse. They're almost done. They just need to set up the doors and the gates. So this is the final stretch run. They have persevered despite all this opposition. They're almost done. And so Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, and it says the rest of their enemies. Remember, haters always travel in packs, right? They got more people since the first time. They got more enemies to come against them. They're going to pull out all the stops. They're going to say, they're almost done with this. We got to try everything, and that's chapter 6. That's what happens in the rest of our passage today. And the first goal, as we look at it, is to distract Nehemiah. Verse 2, they try to arrange a meeting with him. Now, maybe you're thinking, first glance, that doesn't seem that bad, right? I mean, it's just a meeting. 
I mean, why, why wouldn't just Nehemiah just go and, and meet with him? Well, you've got to realize two things. One, he's got a history with these guys, right? Nehemiah has seen clearly over and over these guys, he knows them by name, show up over and over again. He knows what they're trying to do. They've opposed him. They've threatened violence on his people. They've stirred up division and doubt amidst his people. So Nehemiah has a history with these guys. He knows what they're up to. The second thing, again, part of the context, is they want to meet at the plain of Ono. This would have been about a day's journey from Jerusalem. And so if you think about it, in that day, it was a big deal to take a day journey someplace. Then he gets there. Most likely, he's going to have a day meeting with these guys. And then he has to take another day to travel back. And so if you just do the math, that's three days lost. They're almost through with this project, and they're asking him, hey, hey, go, go to town for three days, meet with us, it's all going to be okay. And then we read verse 2, he thinks they might do harm to him. And so maybe it's longer than three days, maybe he doesn't even make it back at all. And so how does Nehemiah respond? He denies the request. He says, I'm doing a great work, why would I leave it to come to you? It's a good answer, right? Nehemiah knows his priority from the beginning. This is what God has called me to do. This is what I'm sacrificing for. These are the people that he's in charge me to build together for this project. I'm not gonna leave that and go to you. That's not my priority. That's not my focus. Nehemiah is focused and he needs to be because it says four times Nehemiah is charged with, hey, come. Hey, come meet with us. They, they don't take no for an answer, right? And so Nehemiah is just over and over, he's giving him the stiff arm, right? He's saying, no, I got places to be. I got better things to do. This is a great work. That's not the great work. And maybe he was tempted to do that, but he stays focused. And listen, all of us in this room have priorities, God-given priorities. They're different than Nehemiah's. Your God-given priorities, you look at the New Testament, is to make disciples of all nations, is to love your neighbor, is to serve your friends, is to love your spouse. That's your call. That's your priority. That's your great work. It's not to rebuild the wall. It's to rebuild people. And that's your priority. And listen, some of you this morning, you need to work on your stiff arm. Right? I mean, you got some people coming after you and saying, hey, let's, let's come. Let's meet over here. Let's do this over here. You don't need to worry about that right now. Let's, let's go over here. That, that, that right now some of you have some sin coming after you during the week. It's enticing you. Hey, let's just go over here. It, it's not going to be that big deal. You'll still have time for this other stuff over here, your family, your faith, your church. They won't even know. Just, just come, let's meet over here. Listen, high school students, you guys are being pulled in every way possible right now. You have people saying, hey, hey, just, just come over here. Don't go on that mission trip on spring break. Oh, there's so many other things we could do. Oh, why would you go to church? I mean, isn't that just a crutch? You have so many opposing voices in your life pulling you all sorts of direction. Listen, work on your stiff arm, right? Work on pushing those people, those, those voices, those sins out of your way. Say, no, 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 I've got a greater priority. I'm going to reprioritize all of my life around God, not around you. And listen, it may seem urgent, but it's not. Those sins may seem, I, I got to do this. I mean, this is going to bring me pleasure. It's not. You have a greater priority, a God-given priority, a great work that God has called you to. How can you, 
stay focused. That's what Nehemiah does is he stay, stays focused, and he needs to stay focused because the hits keep on coming. Look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5, it says, in the same way he sent Ballot for the fifth time, so he comes back again, can't get enough. He sends his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Verse 6, in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you, should, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then Nehemiah responds. He sends saying, no such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your mind. And so as you look at this, what Sanballat is doing is he's trying another strategy. Hey, four times. Hey, come meet with me. Hey, just, we just want to talk. We just want to hang out. That doesn't work. Nehemiah is laser sharp focused. And so he goes a fifth time and he makes accusations. And as we look at it, we learn their accusations just by a simple thing that it says he sends an open letter. Verse five. That in these days, every time you would send a letter, you would put a seal on it. Specifically, a governor like Sanballat was in Samaria, as he sends a letter to another governor, to officials, there would have been a seal on it. And again, their places are, are a little bit away. They're 30 miles north, Samaria is of Jerusalem. And so you send an open letter without a seal on it, that's exchanging multiple hands in multiple places, multiple opportunities, invitations, really, for people to read this letter. So as we look at this, these aren't private criticisms. These are public accusations that Sam Ballot is making. So it's a really big deal. He says, you intend to rebel. He says, you're a traitor. You wish to be king. You're spreading rumors that you are going to be king. Now, this is where it's really important that we look at the text, right? We're in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 6. A lot has happened before now. We can look at Nehemiah's life and see, is this true? Is this true? And so we look at his life, and we go back to, to chapter 2. Nehemiah goes to the king and asks for permission to help the city of Jerusalem rebuild. He not only asks for permission, he gives the king his plan. He, he tells him the supplies he needs. He tells him how long it's going to take him. Uh, notice in chapter 2, if you remember, he doesn't sneak out at, at night. He doesn't gather the king's army for a revolt. He doesn't go behind the king's back. No, he goes directly to the king, and he asks him for permission. He gives him his plan. So Nehemiah is not rebelling against authority. He respects authority. He's not trying to be king. He respects the king. And we can just look at Nehemiah's life and see that. And so these are false accusations. And here's what you need to know is Nehemiah is their leader. Nehemiah has come alongside these people. He's feared God. He's pointed them to God. He said, God has called us to do this. Let's band together to do this. And so what's going to happen if people take him out? Do you think that's going to cause some of these people who've made all these sacrifices? We read at one point that they were going without food. There was a famine in the land. Do you think that's going to cause all these people to be really excited about finishing? No, they're going to get distracted. They're going to they're going to feel weakened. And so Nehemiah knows this as they bring these false accusations that if they discredit him, they can disrupt the work. The same thing is true today. Some of you are leaders in this room. All of you, I would say, are leaders in some way. You have people that look up to you, that follow you. 
And, and you need to pray for yourself as a leader. That you have people, you have opposing voices, you have sin that's coming at you to discredit you, to disrupt your work. Listen, you need to pray for yourself. You need to pray for other leaders in your life. Do you do that? In our church, do you pray for our community group leaders? Do you pray for them? Some of you meet in groups every week. You go into their home. You hear them talk about the Bible, engage you in discussion, lead you on mission, and you leave, and you don't, you don't thank them. You don't ask them how their week went. You're not praying for them. Are you praying for your leaders? Are you praying for your ministry team leaders? Are you praying for me? Last week, uh, one of our college students says, hey, Tim, what needs do you have? Like, what, what can I do for you? Like, can I pray for you? And I said, yes. Yeah. Pray for your leaders. High school students, are you praying for your leaders? Bradley, David, Anna, are you praying for them? Uh, maybe you look out and see them and you think, man, they got it all together, right? Their marriage is perfect. Uh, they don't have any opposition, no accusations, trying to discredit them. I mean, they just are here at spring break because they don't have anything else to do, right? Isn't that right, guys? I mean, they didn't have plans to do anything else. They just, they just show up and they just come along for the ride because it's fun. No, no, they have opposition at every turn. As they lead you, they have opposition. Do you pray for them? Because if you can take out a leader, you can take out the work. And that's what's happening here. That's their goal. And so how does Nehemiah respond? Look at the text with me. He says, nothing you say has been done. You are inventing this. Just a simple rebuttal, just a simple defense. He doesn't go into this long, drawn-out debate. It doesn't say it follows him home, it consumes his thoughts, he can't sleep at night. No, he just says, hey, you're going to accuse me, you're going to send out an open letter about my character, about my ultimate goal. That's not true. He just simply says, that's not true, you're making this up, I haven't done any of this. And so have you been accused? Have people gossiped about you? Have people made assumptions about you? Have you made assumptions about yourself? Have you accused yourself? I think a lot of times this is what we do. We don't need other people to accuse us. We have ourselves to do that, right? So some of us walk in here this morning. I don't know if I can worship God. I mean, I don't know about what I did this week. I mean, I don't know if I'm really saved. I don't know if God's grace is sufficient for me. I mean, maybe the grass is greener on the other side in my marriage, in my church. Maybe I should just go over here and check this out. And you accuse yourself over and over that the reality is for some of us, it's not outside accusation, it's internal accusation. It's in our own heads. And a lot of us do that. How do you respond in that moment? You need to know that's key because the ultimate goal here that we see in verse 9 is that they wanted to frighten Nehemiah. Verse 9, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work. They'll just quit. It will not be done. The ultimate goal of accusations, the ultimate goal of accusations in Nehemiah's life and your life is to cause you to fear and to quit. You see, here's the reality. Uh, what often happens in our life is God gives us a great mission. It's different than Nehemiah, but it's to make disciples, to love our neighbors, to serve our spouse. God gives us these, these great, weighty, eternal missions in our life, and then at some point, opposition comes. If it hasn't come for you, it will come in the future. It's going to come. And in that moment, we start to think, like, maybe I shouldn't do this. Like, maybe my marriage shouldn't be this hard. I mean, maybe we're just not a fit for one another. Maybe we should just separate. 
you look at your workplace and you think, man, a lot of people seem to be coming against me in my workplace. Maybe, maybe I should just quit and find something else. Why does this have to be so complicated? A lot of us look at our church and we think, why is it so, why is it so messy? I mean, maybe the grass is greener. Maybe I just need to take a break. Maybe I just need to look for something else. And opposition comes in the midst of what God's called you to, and we begin to fear, and we begin to consider quitting. But here's what Nehemiah teaches us, is that opposition often doesn't contradict what God's calling you to do. It affirms it. Don't you see that? You see, God has called you to do some weighty things, to be a part of his eternal mission. You think that's going to be easy? You think nobody's going to have anything to say about that? You think everybody's going to like you? No. Of course there's going to be opposition. You're a sinful human being around other sinful human beings responding to a holy God and his holy mission. There's going to be opposition. Of course there is. There's going to be an enemy that's coming after you to distract you. You know when you don't have opposition? It's when you're not responding to God's call. It's when you've already quit. You don't have opposition then. Why? Because they've already won. You've already quit. There's no need to bring opposition against you. And so listen, some of you are experiencing opposition. You need to know that's not a contradiction of God's calling in your life, in your marriage, in your workplace, in your relationships. That's an affirmation of what God's called you to do. Don't quit. Don't fear. The most repeated command in the Bible, do not fear. Why? Because God knew we would need to hear that over and over and over again. God's affirming us oftentimes in the midst of opposition. We don't need to quit. What do we need to do? Look at what Nehemiah does. He lives in integrity. He sets the record straight when he needs to, and he moves forward in the mission. He doesn't dwell on it. He doesn't debate with them. It's a one-liner. I didn't do this. You're inventing this. And he gets back to his priority. He's focused even amidst this fear. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, Tim, that's, that sounds good. But that's easier said than done, right? I was thinking about that in my life. That's easier said than done. And I was looking at my life, and I thought about my, my son, who's four years old, who just started playing t-ball. And it's amazing. It's like herding cats, right? And so yesterday, we were out for the t-ball game, and you try to give kids instructions, and they just always can't compute it. They're four years old, right? And they're trying to hit a, a ball with a bat. It's dangerous, actually. And so we're out there yesterday, and almost every game so far, this is what happens. When kids get up to the bat, and it's, it's my son as well, kids get up to bat, and the coach says, hey, hey, spread your legs out a little bit. Because they walk up, and they're just kind of like this, you know, like swaying side to side, <laughs> trying to hit butterflies. And the coach is like, hey, hey, spread your legs out a little bit. But, but that's easier said than done for a four-year-old. And so oftentimes for kids, and my son included, he's either like this with his feet together or he's like this with his feet apart, right? Well, I don't know if you've ever played t-ball. You can't swing like that, right? And so I'm close by, and what I do every game so far is I walk up to Ashwin, my four-year-old son, and I get right behind him. This is during the game. I'm that dad. And I get right behind him, and I'm like, Ashwin, move your feet shoulder width apart. And he's like, what? I'm like, don't worry about it. And I, and I just move his feet for him, and I put him, I literally pick up his feet, and I put him in the place that they need to go. Why? So he can stand and so he can swing, right? That's exactly what happens in Nehemiah. 
Look at the next part with me. It says that Nehemiah prays into verse 9. He prays, he says, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. You see, is this easier said than done? Yeah, it is. And it's definitely difficult to do if we just have some principles, but not if we have the person of God himself. We've said that over and over in the series of Nehemiah, the goal is not to learn some principles. The goal is to get the person of God himself, right? And so Nehemiah is experiencing this opposition. He says, oh God, he stops. Oh God, strengthen my hands. I need to refocus on what you've called me to do. And so God comes and and he situates his feet. He puts them exactly where they need to go. So his hands can be strengthened so he can do the work God has called him to do. He refocuses him. Easier said than done, absolutely. But listen, you don't have to do it by yourself. Nehemiah didn't do it by himself. He's not some superhero in the Old Testament. We've already looked at that. He's not a priest. He's not a general. He has no training for this. He's a cupbearer to the king. He's a servant to the king. Listen, I don't know what training you have. I don't know how much Bible you know. I don't know how long you've been in the church. Listen, it doesn't matter. God can strengthen your hands. God can situate your feet so you can stand and be refocused on what he's called you to do. Even amidst opposition, even when it feels like everybody's coming against you, every sin looks so enticing, every voice is so loud, God can strengthen your hands to refocus you. He can settle your feet. That's the beauty of the Christian life. Listen, you are not in this alone. Do you know that? Has anybody ever said that to you? Or have you just gotten some principles? Do you just go to church, you hear some things I should do, some things I shouldn't do, and you think, well, I guess I'll try again because that didn't go well last week? Or do you get the person of God himself? Is he strengthening your hands? Are you asking him to do that amidst opposition? Are you praying to God in the midst of that saying, God, I can't do this. Strengthen my hands, settle my feet, put me back to work. That's what Nehemiah does. That's what we need to do. That the way Nehemiah was able to live like this is the same way you and I are able to live like this. The strength of God, not your strength. Thank God, right? Amen? Not your strength, not my strength, not our strength collectively as a church. It's the mighty hand of God. We have that in our series title graphic. This big hand is putting these bricks down to build. Somebody asked me the first week of the series, like, whose hand is that? It's kind of creepy. It's the hand of God, right? That all of this happens in Nehemiah. All of this happens in your life by the mighty hand of God. And we need that. Nehemiah needs that because it keeps coming. Look at verse 10 with me. There's a lot of names here, so stay with me. Now, when I went to the house of Shammai, the son of Delai, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. So another meeting, different people inside the temple. He said, let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understand, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had actually hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. 
Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So I know that's a lot, but essentially what happens is this. Nehemiah is facing another challenge, this time from a, a supposed prophet, a man of God who comes alongside him and says, hey, there's people trying to kill you. You need to run and hide. You can do that in the temple. But again, context really important of this time. There's two things you need to know. One, Nehemiah knows what's at stake. Verse 11, he says, should such a man as I run away? He says, I can't hide now. I'm the leader of these people. I have served these people. I can't be selfish now. I can't leave this project. I can't leave these people and hide away in the temple. What would happen to the people? Nehemiah says, I can't do that. I know what's at stake. The second thing is he knows his Bible. He says, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? This comes from Numbers 3 and 18 in the Old Testament, where it talks about that only a priest could go into the temple. Nehemiah knows his Bible. He says, I can't go in the temple. I can't desecrate a holy place like that. I'm not, I'm not a priest. And so the supposed prophet comes along. Another strategy, Sanballat and Tobiah, I'm telling you guys, it's like spy stuff, right? It's like the original homeland, the original 24. I mean, these guys are pulling out all the stops. They're not just trying to kill him. They're hiring people to make him fearful of them killing him. Do you see what's going on here? This is the Bible. It's not homeland. It's not 24. No Jack Bauer. Nehemiah resists this because he knows what's at stake. He knows his Bible. And this is a good reminder for us to measure everything against Scripture. Listen, for us today, there's so much in our world that we can listen to. It's so easy to listen to all of it and respond to it. It's so easy, listen, to watch the news even conservative news, right? Listen to the radio, even Christian radio. It's so easy to listen to people, even Christian people, and listen to all these voices and think, I'm gonna bounce from this idea to this idea. I'm gonna bounce from this strategy to this idea, this debate to this debate. It's so easy to bounce to and fro in the midst of all of these voices in your life, even in the church. What do you need to measure all those voices against? God's word, the Bible. Listen, it's not trendy to read the Bible. Can we just be honest about that? It's not trending on Facebook, right? It's not trendy. It's not popular to read the Bible. Listen, even in the church, that I, I see so many guys, I'm guilty myself. We got a stack of books for our sermon prep. And oftentimes I'm like, where's the Bible? We got all the commentaries, we got all the blogs, we got all the magazines. Where's the Bible? It's not trendy just to read the Bible, recall it, and obey it, right? But it's exactly what we need to go back to because, listen, as God situates our feet, you know where he situates them? In his words, in his voice, above all other voices, that, listen, no matter what your political affiliation is, no matter what blogs you love to keep up with, no matter what hot-button theological topic you like to debate, ultimately what we come back to, what we measure all that against is God's word. That biblical faithfulness in the church for you as a believer, that it requires you to listen to God's voice uh, over and above everybody else's voice. That's what we measure everything else against. 
Nehemiah does that. We need to do that in our lives. Because ultimately the goal is fear. Verse 13 and 14, he says that I should be afraid. They wanted to make me afraid. They keep coming at him. If they can get him to fear, maybe he'll quit. If Satan, if sin, if other people can get you to be afraid, and listen, you're not rooted in God's word, you're just listening to some people, some radio, some news, some blogs, and you're not rooted in God's word, you're going to get moved off track, right? You're going to get pushed off track. You're not going to be able to refocus. You need to stand firm in God's word, and then he's going to strengthen your hands to do the work. That's the pattern we see in Nehemiah's life. That's the pattern we need to see in our life. So that, here's the goal, so that we can finish. Look at verse 15. It says this, So the wall was finished, on the 25th day of the month Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shekinah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan, bear with me, and the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Everybody take a breath. And uh, verse 19, also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. And so just quickly, what's happening in this chapter is there's still fear. The chapter ends that way. Tobiah is still exchanging letters, this enemy of Nehemiah and his people. He's still exchanging letters. He's still trying to promote fear amongst his people. We've said it a few times in this series as well. This isn't a fairy tale, so it doesn't have a fairy tale ending. But that's amazing because neither is life and neither does life, right? So we can relate. The fear keeps coming. The opposition keeps coming. But they finish amidst the fear. And what I love about Nehemiah is he's brief. He says this. He says, so the wall is finished. It's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? All the opposition, all the doubt, all the sacrifice, 52 days of this, and the wall was finished. Nehemiah needs a party planning committee, right? Doesn't Nehemiah know that what gets celebrated gets repeated, right? He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't hold a parade. He doesn't ding, ding, ding. He doesn't have a toast, right? He doesn't do any of that. He just says simply, the wall was finished. Notice, Nehemiah is focused from beginning to end. Even when he finishes, he doesn't take his eyes off God. He doesn't take his eyes off the goal. He knows, and what we're going to see the rest of this book, there wasn't just a wall that needed to be rebuilt, There's a people that need to be rebuilt, right? He knows the work is just beginning. And so he's still focused. And what does happen is amazing. It's not a party. It's not a parade. But it is amazing. Look at verse 16, rather. It says this, all of their enemies are afraid. Why? It says it, for they perceive that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So get this as we close. What happens over the course of this whole book so far, everything that we've seen, especially in chapter six, is opposition, opposition. The goal is fear, the goal is quit, right? That's their goal the whole time, but what happens? The opposite happens, the reverse happens, right? 
They don't quit, they finish. And therefore, God causes all of these nations surrounding Nehemiah, surrounding Jerusalem, to fear him. They don't fear Nehemiah, they don't fear his people, they fear God. Why? Because he finishes. You see, here's what I think we do sometimes with faithfulness, is we downplay it. You even hear it in our intonation when we talk about it. If a guy's really faithful, we say things like, well, you know, I mean, he's a solid dude. I mean, he's, he's, really, he's a really faithful guy, don't we? What are we saying there? He's boring, right? No passion, but he's faithful. He shows up, right? And sometimes we confuse faithfulness. And we think, oh, faithfulness is over here. Passion is over here. They don't ever converge. They don't ever meet. You need to know that's a misconception. We see it in the life of Nehemiah. Is Nehemiah passionate about this? Is it important to him? You bet it is. So he's faithful about it. Listen, they go together. They're not contradicting. Passion and faithfulness go together. And so here's what that means. In the mundane, in the small things, in the things, you're just being faithful. You're just showing up with your wife in the church. In those small things that seem little, in the faithfulness that seems boring, God is working a passion in and through you that's gonna cause other people around you to see you and see what you're doing, see you plugging in cables, see you putting out signs, see you up on the uh, worship team, singing out to God, see you serving your spouse, your neighbors during the week, seeing you do all of that. And people are gonna look at you and say, man, that guy's faithful. Who is his God? Maybe we should take a look at God. That's what happens in this passage. Listen, don't downplay faithfulness. God works out your passion through faithfulness. They go together. We need to be reminded of that as a church, don't we? I mean, a lot of you guys do little things. You think, does anybody notice? Does anybody care? You do little sacrifices for your family, for your neighbors, for your coworkers. And you think, well, nobody probably notices this. I mean, when I ask you guys to share these things, you say, well, I haven't done anything. And I ask, well, tell me more about that. And you start telling me ways you serve, ways you love, ways you pray. And I think, you need to write a blog, right? You need to get on stage and share that. That's huge. It's faithfulness. It's passion. Don't be confused. They finish the wall. People proclaim, man, who is this God? Maybe we should fear him. That can happen in our lives. How does it happen? Two questions I want to give you as we close. Just like for Nehemiah, so many things could get him off track. It's the same for us. Two questions. One, what is distracting you from finishing? What sin is that? What fear is that? What opposing voice is that? What people in your life do you need to give the stiff arm to? They're distracting you from God's priority in your life. What is that for you? Look at your life. What is that for you? What distracts you from God's calling in your life? The second question, how can God strengthen your hands? How can God refocus you, situate your feet, refocus you on what you're called to do? We want to give you opportunities to do that. That's why these guys are here from Texas is so that we can refocus on God's mission in the city of Phoenix, what he wants us to do to love Jesus, to live like him, and to lead others to him. That's our call as a church. Will you be a part of that? Listen, you're always going to have opposition. That's not going anywhere. But at some point, you need to take your eyes off the opposition, and you need to fix them on God, because he'll strengthen your hands. Let's pray. Father in heaven.
I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity to be strengthened in your work. I thank you for these men and women who are here today amidst opposition, maybe even opposition this morning, getting out of bed, sickness, sin, strife, that said, don't come, just do something else. But they made it here, and God, I pray that they would continue to make it, they would continue to finish and be faithful in the midst of opposition, that they wouldn't go to fear, that they wouldn't go to quitting. God, we would recognize we are in a battle. There is an enemy coming after us when we're doing what we've been called to do. So it wouldn't throw us off. It wouldn't contradict God's calling. It would affirm it, even in this moment as we respond, as we continue to worship. God, I pray that you would do this, uh, do that for these men and women, that you would do that for this church as we worship you, as we fix our eyes on you. In the name of Jesus, we pray that. Amen.